Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. Very happy to be back. We took a little break over the winter, um, but uh, now we have another episode that comes by popular request. Our last several have really been um, really based on your suggestions. So I'd like to say, keep your suggestions coming in because all of your suggestions, frankly, have been awesome. Um, and we've had awesome people people to speak to them, um, you can reach us at info at ncsautism.org. So today, um, the topic is, drum roll please, ECT, um, which many of you uh, may have heard of. It's uh, electroconvulsive therapy, and it is sometimes used in cases of um, very severe autism with other clinical presentations um, where other methods really haven't uh, been able to address the underlying um, symptoms such as, you know, aggression and self-injury. And this is an amazing podcast because I have not one, not two, but three guests <laughs> for you today. The first guest uh, you are all familiar with, that is Amy Letts, the VP of NCSA. Hi, Amy. Hi, Jill. Um, she has written extensively about ECT. She has a nonprofit, you know, devoted to helping parents uh, who are in the situation really looking for options. So um, super knowledgeable. Uh, the other guest has been on before, Dr. Lee Wachtel from Kennedy Krieger Institute, um, the Hello. clinical director of the neurobehavioral unit. Hello, Dr. Wachtel. Hello, Jill. Um, thank you so much for being here. And we have somebody new, da, 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 Jenny Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein um, is actually coming to us from Israel. She lives outside of Jerusalem. Um, she is a child psychiatrist. She practices, um, you know, there in Israel and she treats children uh, suffering from trauma. She has patients with autism, ADHD, you know, depression, bipolar, you name it. But she is here today because she's actually a parent of a child with autism who has benefited from ECT. So we have lots of perspectives and, um, now let's get into it. Um, what I'd like to do is start with a very, very basic question. I think a lot of our listeners don't know what ECT is. So if a Amy and Lee, if you could um, just give a little backgrounder for us. Sure. Maybe take, a first, take a first stab at it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, outside of autism, um, ECT, otherwise known as electroconvulsive therapy is, um, probably the oldest um, tool in the psychiatric armamentarium and um, came about in the beginning of the 20, in the beginning of the 20th century with the search for kind of biological therapies um, that were driven long, be that was driven long before the advent of um, psychotropic medications um, as a way to alleviate psychiatric suffering and people who largely at that time were um, more or less like locked away in asylums and really had no other option. And um, so everybody thinks that convulsive therapy began with electricity, but um, actually convulsive therapy began um, a few years, years earlier than uh, 1938. In 1934 was the beginning of convulsive therapy when um, Ladis Lamaduna in Budapest used um, penicillin tetrazole and an injection of um, camphor and oil to um, induce a seizure in um, patients who um, largely were suffering from either schizophrenia or various catatonic presentations. 
And um, some of the like early theories about convulsive therapy were driven by what we now know, know as to be incorrect. But um, then they felt that patients who had seizures actually were in some way protected from um, mental illness. So some of the theory of the time was that if you could induce a seizure, maybe you would be able to cure a, a cure mental illness. We actually know um, now in the 21st century that um, having epilepsy or diagnosis of epilepsy makes it more likely for you to have other psychiatric comorbidities, but that's a separate topic. Um, but so um, anyways, the initial response to convulsive therapy um, was pretty remarkable. And there were reports of patients who had been hospitalized for years, bedridden, didn't move, didn't speak, um, completely incapacitated, who were able to um, leave the hospital and resume some level of functioning. And in 1938, um, convulsive therapy became um, uh, became electroconvulsive therapy when Beanie and Charletti used electricity to induce a, uh, a convulsion. And it's just really important to kind of know some of the history of ECT because when people hear ECT and with all the stigma associated with ECT, it's usually because of the association with electricity. Of course, electricity brings up a lot of kind of like images and the optics of it are not so great. But really the electricity is just a means to an end to induce a convulsion. And it's the convulsion that um, leads to um, benefits for a wide range of psychiatric pathology. Um, most commonly, um, at least in this country, to address affective illness, um, but also um, psychotic illness and catatonic presentations. Less commonly, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, Parkinson's, and um, also status epilepticus. So there are multiple indications for um, ECT. And over time, um, ECT has involved um, has evolved to the, a modern presentation that is always accompanied by full anesthesia and neuromuscular blockade and oxygenation. And even though there are multiple ways to induce a convulsion via an injection, um, via inhalation of a gas, so for a while, indoclon or fluorophyll gas was used. Um, there's also some research centers that look at the usage of magnets to induce convulsion. Um, the vast majority of facilities use um, electricity um, in the form of of modern ECT devices, and which actually have a somewhat different electrical current than the type that comes out of the wall. And um, that, so, yeah, so ECT is presently used for um, psychiatric patients across the lifespan who suffer from um, intractable affective, psychotic, or catatonic presentations, most commonly, but um, there are also instances of its usage in less common presentations like neuroleptic malignant syndrome and in some patients with Parkinson's. Also, I just want to clarify, Jill, because especially in our community, there's some confusion about this. ECT is not the kind of electric shock that's practiced at the Judge Rotenberg Center, where which has become extraordinarily controversial. And I get a lot of a lot of people asking me about that. So what they do at the Judge Rotenberg uh, Center is contingent shock on conscious, uh, you know, uh, clients or or residents there where it's used for behavior modification the way you would have like an electric collar on a dog to keep the it's dog like a from, skin shock like right? crossing a line right yeah it's an aversive technique you know like to keep them from doing something but ect is a medical intervention that's done under general anesthesia it is not aversive at all and the person is not doesn't feel anything because they're they're asleep the whole time yeah, it's a really critical distinction. A lot of people aren't aware of that. And a lot of people immediately think about like aversive 
um, procedures in that were previously used in ABA, like contingent electric shock or foghorns or like noxious sprays to the, to the face. And really the only similarity between CES and ECT is the sharing of the word electricity. And <laughs> actually both, neither modality um, uses the same type of electricity. Um, but it is a really important to, thing to, to clarify. I totally agree with Amy because it gets a lot of people kind of up in arms if they're unaware of that distinction. So for Amy and and Jenny, both of you, um, can you tell us a little bit from the clinical point of view what the experience is like? You take your kid to a hospital or a clinic or a doctor's office. Can you tell us like what actually happens when your child goes through a procedure? Start with uh, start with Jenny. Oh, here, Jenny, I'll take you off. Okay. Uh, so here in Israel, I uh, bring my son to a hospital which does ECT, performs ECT on patients who are inpatient and outpatient. My son is actually the first child to have been treated there outpatient. And we bring him and we wait our turn in a waiting room and then we are called in and he is put under anesthesia within a few minutes. It doesn't hurt. We put Emla on, the IV is there. He calls it going to sleep. Uh, what, what he understands or how he has described his experience is that I go to sleep and the doctor takes out my bad dreams. Aww. And then uh, it, just a few minutes later, he is in the recovery room and I am by his bedside when he wakes up and he sees my face there as he's opening his eyes. And he is now down to once a month treatment. There were uh, quite a few weeks where he was going twice a week. I'll get more into those details later on. But at this point, we go once a month, and I take him from there straight back to school. And then he has a regular school day, usually rolls right into his music class, and has a very productive and very stable day. So it's really very uh, not intrusive and does not disrupt his routine. Yeah, our experience is pretty similar. You know, we go, or you have to go early in the morning and uh, without eating because it's a you know, being put under anesthesia and at where we go, they're very nice. They recognize that the autistic clients, like they really have trouble waiting. So we get to go first. And I also take Jonah to his program. His, I, I take him home and he gets on the, the bus and goes to his program right afterwards. And he also doesn't find it aversive at all. Um, he can't really talk about the experience, but he's very cooperative and, um, with every step. I am going to give Jill, I'm going to send you a bunch of uh, resources that you can attach to the podcast, including a BBC documentary that uh, Lee and I participated in. Gosh, it's been a few years ago now, uh, yes, but it's oh, a 24 minute documentary on ECT and autism that you can watch on YouTube, but you can actually see Jonah getting uh, ECT. So um, just if you're curious what it actually looks like, it's really doesn't look like much, you know, it's, it's not uh, disturbing, but um, if you're curious, you can check it out. Where, where do you go for it, Amy? Is it in a hospital? Is it in a, yeah, we go to, we go to a, a local uh, psychiatric hospital that treats a lot of inpatients, but they also do outpatient care. We also are treated outpatient. Um, and we've also gone up to Mount Sinai and done it outpatient there before, um, before we got uh, connected with this practitioner in Philadelphia. So, I mean, Joan has been doing it for a long time since he was like, uh, I think 11 and he's 11, yeah, it's been like 12 years. He's almost 24. So yeah. So it's wow. been a long time, but when he started, 
he was young. He was probably like 11 years old or 12 years old. And there was no doctor in Philadelphia area, huge metropolitan area who would treat a child as young as he was with ECT until he did so well at Mount Sinai that Dr. Charles Kellner, who treated him there, was able to convince a colleague here um, to to take him on for maintenance. Because I will say, um, Jonah has to go like like three or four times a month still, like to maintain the benefits of ECT, and that's the really only real problem. It's it's you know you have to keep going because ECT um, is not like penicillin. It's not going to cure anything, but it's more like, uh, you know, going for dialysis, you have to keep doing it or, or those benefits are going to evaporate. So Jenny and Amy, tell me what was it in your sons that led you to pursue ECT? Can you talk about, you know, what you had tried before? What were their symptoms? Obviously you don't, you know, enter ECT lightly. Right. So um, Yehuda, my son's name is Yehuda. Um, He, it's a a complicated medical story that led to the catatonia, but he had been suffering with an encephalitis and received IVIG twice. Um, I'm very fortunate and I know that other parents don't have this benefit and that because I'm in the field, I have access to colleagues who can really be helpful to me. And that was a, a real privilege that I had that other people don't. When, when Yehuda received his first IVIG treatment, he did very well. He had a relapse. He had a second IVIG treatment and he recovered. But then I started seeing symptoms that were strange and that really nobody was able to recognize who was involved in his case. And I reached out to Gina Moynihan, who's uh, the, at the NIMH in the uh, autoimmune encephalitis research And she was very gracious and heard the story and looked at the videos. And she said, Jenny, encephalitis can lead to catatonia. And Yehuda is struggling with catatonic symptoms. Can you explain what you mean by that? I'm not sure. So Yehuda is very verbal and he had stopped talking. Or when he was talking, he was babbling and saying a lot of nonsense words that didn't connect to anything that was going on around him. He is a very um, pleasant and engageable child, and he became very distant at times and lost in his own world, and then at times was very agitated and wouldn't stop moving. And this was actually, as we talk about the way the catatonia presents, this was the part that was very confusing because psychiatrists know what catatonia looks like, the classic catatonia that we learn about in medical school and that we picture in schizophrenic patients, but the agitation that Yehuda presented with as it was mixed with the more classic catatonic look of a patient who is not talking, not moving, frozen at times, the mix was confusing. But he was very agitated at times, would walk around our house. We have a garden that runs the perimeter of the house and he would walk around the house for hours every day and just walk around, walk around, walk around. And he was losing weight at a rapid, rapid rate because he stopped eating, he stopped urinating defecate. It was frightening medically to watch him deteriorate. And uh, so when Gina identified what was going on, I then again was very privileged to turn to my training director. I trained at North Shore University Hospital, which is now Northwell. And my training director, Dr. Victor Fernari, uh, immediately linked me to his friend, who is now my friend, Lee Wachtel. And I reached out to Lee and she was unbelievably kind and generous and helped me to reach out to colleagues here in Israel to obtain ECT. 
And part of what was fortunate for me is that hearing about ECT didn't scare me because I've referred many patients to ECT myself. As a psychiatrist, I also treat adults mm. and I'm a big fan of ECT. I have many depressed patients whose lives were saved by ECT. And so I was immediately comfortable with the idea. I just hadn't realized that this was what was gonna be my own son's savior. And uh, I was fortunate that here in Israel, ECT is known and it is known as a treatment for autism. The uh, first treatment that we had was uh, really, it was, it was a magical change after the first treatment in that after not eating for weeks and weeks and losing weight, as we were driving home and Yehuda was waking up from the anesthesia, he looked up at me and asked me for a hamburger. <laughs> we mm, got, wow. my husband ran to the store as though he were trying to get a hamburger for, a, for a, a pregnant woman who was desperate for a hamburger and that's all she would want. And we banged on the doors of the store that wasn't even open yet and got him his burger and he ate it. And we just cried because we hadn't seen him eating in so long. And it was really from there after every treatment, we saw progress. And uh, he got back to himself after 16 treatments. And we made, it was a, it was a discussion that, that Lee and I had and the doctors here and I had, and we decided to stop. When he was back to himself, we stopped because we really weren't sure what his prognosis was, what the trajectory was gonna be. But uh, we had from October 21 until about the end of May, beginning of June 22 of symptom-free life. And then everything came crashing down again. And oh, all this started coming back, but it never got as bad as it did because we saw what was happening and we knew right away and we just got him right back and started ECT again. And it, it took about 20 this time to get him back to baseline, but now we're continuing and once a month is holding him now. And so we're down to once a month and you, when you see him, you don't see any difficulties at all anymore. He's back to his very zestful, uh, happy life and is functioning. He so he still has autism. I mean, he's. Right. So ECT does not treat autism. Right. Yehuda is, uh, his diagnosis is moderate intellectual uh, disability and autism. He has a spontaneous mutation, which caused a deletion on chromosome one. Ah. Syndrome doesn't even have a name because they actually have not seen this before. Hmm. Call it Yehuda syndrome. And uh, <laughs> so he's back, <laughs> he's back to his um, very, um, pleasant and curious and very musical, uh, uh, engageable self with his autism and his cognitive disabilities, but he's enjoying life and he feels safe and comfortable. I will add, as we teased apart what it was that led to the catatonia, yes, part of it was the infection, but another big uh, hit that he took was the trauma of corona which completely upended his life. And he, like many kids with autism, is a creature of routine and habit. And Corona was a petrifying experience for him because of the change in routine and the canceled school and the masks. And even though here in Israel, special education stayed open really um, much, much more than the, the reg regular educational system. There were closures even of his school and it was devastating for him. And our, our thought is that it was really the combination because the, the timing was, was really very difficult with the combination of the infection and the trauma. And trauma does play a role in kids with autism developing catatonic symptoms. So we're, we feel very fortunate that life has been stable, which has also definitely helped his recovery post-corona. 
Thank you for that. Amy, what about you? What, what was it that led you down this path? Obviously you had tried other things before with Jonah. Yeah. So, um, Jonah was very aggressive as a child. Um, he was self-injurious too, but, uh, you know, he would hit himself into the face until his nose was bleeding. It probably would have been very disturbing to anyone who, um, wasn't familiar with the extreme self-injury that, that we, that we see from, you know, kids who like to attach their own retinas or give themselves concussions in comparison, his self-injury injurious behavior was, was fairly, uh, kind of, um, it was, we could deal with it, but his aggression was, was very severe. He attacked us uh, multiple times a day. Often, um, me, my husband, teachers, aides, thank God he never went after his younger siblings. I don't know why, but we never could have lasted as long. He could have, I was scared he was going to kill me because um, that's happened before um, where in a rage an autistic adult has um, killed their caregiver. Um, and I was like, this is not going to be me. I just, I was just really scared that if we didn't get a handle on it's like unbelievable rages where he would pull my hair, bite, kick you know, punch. And I was really struggling to manage him when he was like eight years old. And I was, you know, I knew as a boy, my husband's a big guy that he was going to be a big guy too. Um, when he was nine, Jonah spent a year, almost a year, 10 months inpatient on Lee's unit. That's how we met. Um, and when he came home, he was pretty stable. When he was there, he got a diagnosis of bi rapid cycling bipolar disorder as the driver of those rages. And because um, it had nothing to do with what was going on in the environment, Jonah could be eating McDonald's French fries and watching Sesame Street. And then in a dime, like on a dime, he would turn and launch himself at me. It was like clearly not a decision he was making or or that he was upset about something. It was just something that was kind of happening in the neurochemistry in his head. And he came home stable on medications that are typically used to control bipolar disorder, lithium and Abilify. But within a year, um, things had deteriorated and he it was, things were just as bad as they ever had been, which I feel is like a story I hear a lot that kids do well, autistic kids do well on certain medications, but it never lasts. And the moment when we knew like we had come to a reckoning was um, Jonah was in the car with my husband and an aide and my father-in-law who was like 80 years old at the time was driving. And Jonah just started trying to attack my father-in-law and in order to kind of prevent an accident, my husband, Andy, was holding on to him. As, and just like his Jonah's strength in these moments was unbelievable. Even though he was only, whatever, 10 years old, Andy had to restrain him. And in the process, he snapped Jonah's arm, just snapped the upper arm. And it was an unbelievable, I mean, obviously horrible. You know, like I got that call from Andy. He was like, we're going to the hospital I was sure he was exaggerating. Like, I just didn't think that that, that that could be true. And that's what happened. Just broke it right through. And I ran to the hospital and Jonah was like on the, in a gurney, just like asking for a band-aid. It was crazy. The social, you know, social services came in. Of course, they knew right away after meeting Jonah that, and Andy was just a mess. I'm sure it was the worst day of his life. He can't even talk about it now. Um, and we knew that something had to change, that it was not safe for Jonah to have, be having these rages. It was not safe for us um, to kind of manage them as he got bigger. And that's when I reached out to Lee. I don't think she'd heard from me for a year. And I called like probably like a hysterical mess and left her a voicemail because she called me back that night. I remember it was like a weekend. It was like, and she called me back right away. And 
And then I asked her if she thought ECT might help for Jonah, because I knew when Jonah was at Kennedy Krieger, there were several uh, individuals there who um, were getting ECT because they hadn't responded to, to psychotherapy or, I mean, not psychotherapy, like behavioral treatment or, or psychopharmacology, nothing had worked for them. And, and like all 11 of the patients that we had, you know, sent for ECT had done better a hundred percent of them. So, uh, and I just want to say, so like Jenny, I was not scared of ECT at all. Like when you've lived with this kind of severe behavior, when you put your kids on all kinds of antipsychotics that can give them terrible and, and kind of permanent side effects or even kill them. I mean, hundreds of kids have died due to complications from antipsychotic use and not one kid has ever died from ECT, even going back to like the 1940s when Loretta Bender was giving it to like three-year-olds at Bellevue. No one has ever, because there was nothing else to give kids who presented like with um, psychopathology, no one has ever done, no kid has ever died from that. So I was like, how do we sign up? Can we sign up now? Like I, the idea of doing something. You did ask that if we could go tomorrow, I think. Yeah. something I did the idea of going back to trying new cocktails of of drugs that we'd already tried and failed before and trying to do this I in the context of my home I had no interest in doing that you know that was that was just seemed like destined to fail and ECT was something that had worked so well it was new we hadn't tried it but it was there were tremendous obstacles it took months um to get it done because like I said, we couldn't find anyone in, in Philly to do it. And Dr. Charles Kellner, who's amazing, one of my favorite people on the planet, said he would take Jonah at his unit in Mount Sinai, but he had to go through so many hoops. He had just taken on a new autistic patient and they're kind of like, I don't know, is it the IRB or some other um some other committee had to approve the ECT in New York for the ethics committee. Ethics yeah, committee. not the IRB because it wasn't yeah. research. But- so some there was some committee that had to approve it and it took a long time. And um, in the meantime, Jonah was just at home. He was like, uh, we were just barely holding it together. And uh, and finally, when we got approved, it was incredible. Even though I had to drive up to New York City three days a week for the first, I don't know, three or four weeks, three or four weeks, get up at five and get him out to the car. It was totally worth it. It was we it took about nine um, episodes before he was kind of stable between treatments and it took a long time to, you know, kind of wean down the number of treatments, but for Jonah, it's been transformative. You know, now he's, like I said, he's almost 24 and he did grow up to be a big guy. He's about six feet tall and 200 pounds. And there's no chance I could manage him physically now, but although he does have some self-injurious behaviors when he gets agitated, like he hits himself on the side of the head, um, and we're, we're, he's giving himself cauliflower ear, which we're really trying to redirect that, but he never really never goes after people anymore. He's not aggressive, which allows him to go out, stay at, live at home, go out in the community, go to a great, uh, program. So when I say it's transformative, it is the reason Joan is able to have as full a life that he has. Yeah. I, think- yeah, and I'm, I want to ask a quick question. Now, Jenny described an almost immediate benefit from it, right? The asking for the hamburger. Did you see an immediate benefit with Jonah? No, not an immediate benefit. I mean, like there was, uh, it took a, and sometimes he would be good for the first day, but then by the second day, you know, he might have some symptoms come back again. It probably took about three weeks and I, Mm -hmm. before he was able to kind of hold the benefits between treatments. I just want to, I just want to add to what Amy said about how life-changing it it can be. Our lives stopped when Yehuda's catatonia was at its worst. I couldn't work. My husband couldn't work. 
we weren't able to, Yoda is our youngest and I have grandchildren, but I, we weren't able to be available for our other kids. Life as a family was completely trampled and ECT restored a sense of health to the entire family system, not just to Yehuda. And that's part of what we're so grateful for is that when Yehuda is well, the family functions. And part of having a child with autism in the family is that it's not just about the child with autism ever. It's a family story always. I'm sure, Amy, yeah. you agree. Yeah, autism is so a important. whole family condition. What you say, like, I, I tell, I talk to, I tell people, like, my mood is directly tied to Jonah's. You know, when he is agitated, even though he's not aggressive anymore, I, or when he's agitated or unhappy or super perseverative, it just really, you just described it so well, Jenny, like, it just grinds the family to a halt. You can't do anything. You can't you know, and you're just so worked up and worried about your kid and just want them to get to a better place. And when he's, when Joan is well, everything is good. Nothing bad can, nothing bothers me. Yeah. And sometimes it's just literally any other type of severe illness in the family. It brings everything to like complete standstill. We hear that really commonly from families. Yeah. My, my daughter was, you know, attacked repeatedly by her brother. So it was like literally a whole family condition. I mean, this was not something to be toyed with. Okay. So here people, this is what I'm going to do. This has been part one of our uh, podcast mini series on ECT. I'm going to draw this one to a close and then we are going to come back next week with the same cast of characters. And uh, we are going to talk more about the policy and politics of ECT. And also I really want to talk to Dr. Wachtel um, about the research behind it. What, what has research been telling us for, how has it been, what are the cost benefits, uh, risk benefits really for autism and other conditions as well. So um, I'm going to sign off right now and uh, you will have to tune in next week for the next episode of the ECT Mini Chronicles. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice.